0: Fantastic. Good job, Jason. Round of applause for Jason. Well done. Um, One of the things that we're learning together and we'll be diving into in the coming months through the learning community process is something that we've been pioneering and innovating here at Apex, and that is the Discovery Bible method. We've seen it now innovate into what we're calling Discovery Bible communities. Uh, One of those is meeting at um, mine and Sally's place on a Sunday evening for anyone who wants to learn the process. And uh, probably about 30 people have been through already. We have soup and salad and you know a variety of other things. And um, it's a great time to enjoy and to learn that particular skill of how to look at the Bible with people who perhaps have never really studied it before in such a way that makes them feel equal to you in the study of it. It's a tremendously powerful tool. And uh, Gillian uh, gave me a call, uh, I think this week, and told me that she's been working with her partner in mission down at one of the rescue centers for homeless women, and they're seeing amazing fruitfulness there. And so we'll begin to see more and more of this work throughout the city, amongst lots of different kinds of people, probably we'll begin to see the margins reached first from the center because we want the people on the margins to change the people at the center because I know I need to be changed and my guess is that you might do too. So keep alert and alive to these opportunities and don't think that somehow these are things for somebody else, they're for you. Say that again. Yes, so if you want to be involved in, um, in the Discovery Bible study process, the best way to do that, of course, is to be part of the Rasonde learning community. Thank you for that. Anyone else got a message for me to share with everybody in the world? <laughs> no, okay. If you're online, please text me. Um, so today, today we're going to look at a new portion of the Acts of the Apostles. And when you look at it, it looks a little dry. So I'm going to read it to you and um, see what you think to it, and then we'll see what it is that God wants to unfold and release to us as we read his word this morning. I'm going to read to you from Acts chapter 20 and verse 1. It picks up the story right after what it was that Chris so helpfully preached to us last week about the riot in Ephesus. Verse 1. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea. Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. One of the more interesting things about that little a uh, bit of of uh, narrative is that Luke joins the party again because it goes from them to we right there at the very end and it seems as though Luke rejoins the group 3 years after Paul has first visited Philippi and it seems as though Luke has stayed behind and of course that's led to all kinds of speculation amongst bible scholars as to what it was that Luke was up to for 3 years Well, one of the things he was probably up to was gathering the documents of the gospel and beginning to think through what it was that he should write down as part of the Acts of the Apostles. And perhaps it is true that um, that one of these old ancient traditions actually took place, and that is that Luke fell in love with Lydia and married her there. But we, of course, have no knowledge of that for certainty, and we'll have to wait until heaven to find out. But certainly Luke had good reason to stay in Philippi for three more years until Paul and the team joined them there. But when you read this, you think to yourself, I don't know, it's great to know the story, it's great to have the kind of the narrative of the journey, but what is it that's going on and what is it that we can take away with us today? And sometimes when you, when you have those kinds of questions, you need to ask yourself, well, what was the motivation for the journey? Clearly, one of the motivations for the journey was what Luke says here, encouragement and strengthening of the churches. Of course, that would be a basic encouragement, a basic motive, a basic initiating force in the heart of Paul and his team. We know as well, of course, that right before the circumstances that are described here, Paul has begun what is called the Corinthian correspondence. First and Second Corinthians in the New Testament is written first when Paul is in Ephesus and then when he's on his road between Ephesus and Corinth. And so this correspondence is taking place whilst the things that are being described here are taking place. So Paul is wanting to deal with the situation, the circumstances that have arisen in Corinth. The divisions, the difficulties, the theological problems, the moral and social problems that have taken place in the church that he needs to deal with. So he wants to encourage the churches. He wants to deal with particularly difficult circumstances in the churches, but he wants to do something else. And I think it's one of his prime motives behind his journey. And we discover this when we read part of that correspondence that I referred to. Because what's in the heart of Paul, alongside strengthening, encouraging the churches, and correcting the churches where he needs to do that, is something that is tremendously important. He wants to open hearts of one group of Christians and melt the hearts of another group of Christians. He wants to open the hearts of one group of Christians and melt the heart of another group of Christians. Later, when he writes the letter to the Ephesians, he says this, Christ has broken down the wall of division that exists between the Jewish culture and the Gentile culture. And now, though we come from different historical, different cultural, different creedal backgrounds, we are all one in the truth and in the belief and in the knowledge and in the relationship that we have in Jesus. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus has taken down the wall. And and Paul wants to to demonstrate the breaking down of this fundamental division that, that existed in the early church between the Jewish and the Gentile believers. And he wanted to do it through one particular practice. One practice that would be released through the opening of one set of hearts and that in the opening of one set of hearts, would melt another set of hearts. You see, he wanted to teach the Gentile Christians that in generosity, their hearts would be open, not simply to give, but to receive. And out of generosity, he fully expected that the hearts of those Jewish believers impoverished because of their social and economic circumstances in Judea and Jerusalem would have their hearts melted towards the gentile Christians who historically they had been taught to be suspicious of and so Paul wanted to open the hearts of one group and melt the hearts of another through the message of generosity in first Sorry, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it gives us the background to this desire in the heart of Paul. And I'd encourage you to look at it with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to do a little exposition through this passage and give you some understanding and some ideas as to how God wants to open your heart, melt your heart, Use your heart, fill your heart today. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 1. There is no need for me to write to you about this service of generosity to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia are all ready to give. And your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow. But that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians came with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. So Paul is on the road. He's in Macedonia. He's in the ancient heartland of the Greek Empire, the place where Alexander the Great had arisen, where this mighty empire had flowed from. And there in these churches that had been planted in the cities of Macedonia, He's writing to his friends again in Corinth. He's already begun the correspondence in 1 Corinthians. And he's spoken about many different things. But now he comes to the matter of the gift that he's gathering to take to Jerusalem and Judea to support the poor. Paul, at the end of his first missionary journey, went to Jerusalem and met with Peter, James, and John. And when he met with them, they listened to his gospel, they listened to the story of his ministry, and they said, this is absolutely Jesus, this is absolutely right, we're 100% behind you, and we really believe that God has sent you to the Gentiles. And then they said this, and Paul records this for us in Galatians chapter 2, and then they said this, they said, only please remember the poor among us. And Paul says, That was exactly the thing I was wanting to do. And so here, in his third missionary journey, he's planning to go to Jerusalem. He's planning to go to Judea. And he's seen all of the churches planted through his ministry. And he wants to gather a gift that will go to the poor in Jerusalem and Judea. And he believes that it will continue to do this work of Jesus, of of removing division between the different cultural groups of the early church, and it'll bring blessing to many. And Paul uses an interesting word. He uses the word parakletos. In, the, in verse 5 there, he, he says, I, I, I want to urge you, I want to urge you as I plan to visit you. Parakletos is the word in John's gospel that's used for the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, I'm sending you another Paracletos," and, and sometimes it's translated counselor. Sometimes it's translated helper. Sometimes it's translated friend. Sometimes it's translated mentor. And really what that person does is come alongside you and G you up into action. Yeah? I mean, I can remember I, I, was, um, I was running for the college, and um, we were on the, the kind of the inter-theological college cross-country, and I'd lost a shoe, and it was in this deep mud, and I had to start, I was, I was way out in the, not in the lead of the thing, but in the front portion of the people running, and um, I lost a shoe, and I was so fed up, I had to get my shoe in, it was all muddy, and I had to put it on my foot, and, you know, and all the field passed me. And so I was really fed up, and I was running along. And, and then along comes Peter Hancock. He's this red-headed lad. He's a bishop in the Church of England now. And he said, come on, Mike. And I thought, yes, he's right, I better. And so I stopped dragging the donkey behind me, and I began to kind of, get going again. And, and as we're coming up towards the finishing line, I thought, I think I've got a bit more energy. And Peter said, come on, you can do it. And I said, yeah, I know. I can. And I, I began to, to unfold these long legs of mine. And before I knew it, I was outstripping poor old Peter, who had given me all of that encouragement to get me there. And we got across the line and he said, thanks very much for that. You know in a kind of friendly fashion but he was my paracletos on that occasion William the Conqueror who's the only um, who's the only invader who has successfully invaded Britain invaded Britain in the year 1066 uh, with his Norman colleagues from what is now northern France and they came in their Viking boats because they were from Viking heritage, that's why they were called Normans, Norsemen. And William the Conqueror came and conquered Britain, conquered England and then the rest of Britain, and um, uh, began the Plantagenet rule. And um, this victory is, is recorded in kind of cinematic history, in cinematic form, in the tapestry of Bayeux. And if you go to the Bayer Monastery today, you can still see this cinematic record of the invasion, the battle of Hastings and the conquest of England. And at one point, there is a little phrase underneath the picture of William the Conqueror holding his sword and he's poking the bottom of the furthest soldier from the front line. He's poking the bottom of his least enthusiastic soldier and it says, William comforteth his troops. (laughs) Using the same idea. Using the same picture. And so Paul is here bringing... Encouragement, he's prompting, he's stirring these Corinthians to the task. He continues in verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves A cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Interesting that, isn't it? Now, many of you will have read this passage before and you'll have noticed certain things that are true about this passage. When Paul is sharing the call to generosity, he doesn't doesn't paint the picture of poor children in Jerusalem starving to death. He doesn't tell the people that if they don't do this, they're not very good Christians. He doesn't seek to push people or to pull people. He doesn't use compulsion. He doesn't use an understanding that these people are reluctant. He uses the understanding that the best way for people to understand the joy of generous giving is to realize that it's like a big belly laugh and once you get laughing it's hard to stop and once there's someone laughing next to you it's really hard not to get the joke even if you don't understand it and it's very difficult not to feel a little bit embarrassed that you're not laughing along with everyone else my kids always used to feel embarrassed with me going to the movies because if it was a comedy I would be the loudest person in the theater. Because I just laughed out loud. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, this open mouth hilarity is an indication of an open hearted generosity. What you need, says Paul, is to do something not prompted out of compulsion, Not pulled from you because you're reluctant, but something that comes from your heart because you are overflowing with joy. And just like hilarity, let the generosity flow. And then he says this. And God is able. Now what does that mean? what does that indicate? Does that indicate that God's not able beforehand? No. But it does give a context for God's ability. You see, what I think Paul is saying here is something that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago, a little bit later in this same book. You remember 2 Corinthians Chapter 12, verse 9, when we looked at Paul discussing with Jesus about the thorn in his flesh, and Jesus said, I'm not taking it away from you. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Made perfect in your weakness. There is a completion that takes place in a particular context in your heart. And again, Paul is indicating that the all-powerful, sovereign God is choosing to step back until he sees something into which he can step in. And what is it he's looking for in our lives to be able to step into? He's looking for the open-hearted generosity of people who are hilarious givers. If you give in a way that is unprompted and and unrestrained and and not created by the emotional appeals of, of people who need money. He says, if you allow that generosity to begin to flow, then God is able to do something. Now listen carefully because this will change your life. If you take on the discipline and culture of generosity, it will change your life. Because God is able to make all grace abound to you. The word in English is abound. The word in Greek is superabound. But because the translators of the New Testament feel like hyperbole is a little bit too strong, they don't use that word. Because it feels a little bit too rich for the consumption of the average believer. But I promise you, the word is superabound. God is able to cause all grace to superabound to you. In other words, to outreach any circumstance of need that you might have in your life. Do you need forgiveness? Well, God's grace superabounds. Where, where sin abounds, grace superabounds, says Paul in Romans. Do you have need in your family? God's grace superabounds. It's, it's, it's able to go beyond the need in your family. Do you have needs in your in your relationships? God is able to superabound your needs. Look what he says. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, how many things? At all times, how many times? Having all that you need, how much need have you got taken care of? You will abound In every good work. There's the word again. Abound. So as we allow our heart to be opened. God goes. At last. I've got this giant store of stuff. That I've just been waiting. To unleash upon you. so that all things at all times in every need superabounds so that my people in representing me can superabound in good works it's so much fun when you do this so me and some fellow conspirators from time to time go on little breaks together or maybe go out for dinner. And just every so often, we'll be there and we'll have this kind of sense in our spirits as we're chatting. We need to give a massive, massive tip. Massive tip. Like, you know, more than we spend on the meal. Because we're chatting away to the, to the serving staff and you know, they've just got an openness about them and there's something going on there. Uh, I was away just um, last weekend, with this young woman, she began chatting to us and we began guessing what it was that she did in the past and said, I bet you were a cheerleader, weren't you? How did you know that? Well, it's just something about the pom-poms that you're carrying and... <laughs> The fact that you did a backflip on the way in. <laughs> and, you know, we, we had all this great conversation, and she told us lots of stuff and way too much information at certain points in the conversation. <laughs> and as we're, as we're having this time, we just said, we just kind of looked around and, yeah. So we left a massive tip. And um, she's in conversation with one of our group now about Jesus on a regular basis because her heart has been opened by generosity of spirit not the money generosity of spirit you see if you begin to cultivate a generosity of spirit It changes the people around you. It warms them up. It creates a gravitational field that draws people to Jesus in you. As you learn how to be generous, so He is able to make all grace superabound so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will be able to superabound In good works. My goodness, I've only got halfway through the passage. It's time for us to go home almost. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful what God is able to do? It says in verse 9, as it is written, He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your right relationships, of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us, your generosity will result in thanksgivings to God. God is the provider, God is the great provider, God is. Our Father, He wants to provide, He wants to give, He wants to protect, He wants to surround us. But our lives defined by scarcity and fear cause our eyes to be closed and our hands to be clenched and we cannot see His goodness and we cannot receive His gifts. So open your eyes today. And look to Jesus, the great gift. And allow these hands that understandably have become clenched through fear in these last few years, have become clenched through a sense of not having enough protection, health, safety, money, security. Just allow him to release your hands. And as he does that, his joy is that your hands will be filled. And as you give, he will return to you pressed down, shaken together, overflowing says Jesus, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, I've heard that the church budget is um, struggling right now. (laughs) And we're about 20% down on what we were pre-COVID. And I could do a really good, job of explaining to you how the institutional church down through the centuries has given us pretty much all of the institutions that have blessed and benefited all of us schools and hospitals and, and giving to an institution may seem distant and foreign and somewhat unpleasant and yet that process continues as we continue to bless and give to many people through institutional framework of APEX but I'm not going to because here's the thing unless you do it out of generosity what's the point anyway see generosity will change your life forever and honestly I don't care where you're generous, with whom you're generous, and with what you're generous. I just dearly long for your life to be touched and blessed so that you know the superabounding presence of His grace. It changes your disposition towards life, changes your disposition towards your family, towards your friends, towards your community. Changes your disposition towards your finances. Because all the five capitals, the spiritual capital, the relational capital, the physical capital, the intellectual capital, the financial capital, you see it as an opportunity to be generous, generous with the things that God's taught you from the Word, Generous with the things that he's revealed to you in prayer, so that spiritual capital continues to grow in your life. Relational capital, so that you share your friends and don't hang on to them. So that you share your children and your family with those who have no children and family. So that you continue to grow in your relational capital. You share your time and your energy, so that you always have energy and time to spare. Wouldn't that be amazing? But you share your wisdom and understanding so that you can always grow in your intellectual capital and you share your money. You give it away because it was not yours in the first place and now it's been given to you to share with others. And God is able to cause all grace to abound and to make you rich in how many ways (laughs) you're getting good at this how many ways he can make you rich in everything are you kidding who doesn't want that Lives of the rich and famous. (laughs) And what it does is to soften the hearts of the people around you. Somebody put a critical thing on Facebook the other day about Apex. And uh, one of our members picked it up and reached out to the person and then shared that particular message with us. And I... I found that person in a coffee shop. And I sat down and I said, I just wanted to say thank you. And they were really, really confused. I said, I just wanted to say thank you because you showed us something that was really helpful for us to remove from our website that would cause lots of people to stumble. And we, I mean, we really saw that And I just wanted to thank you for it. And guess what? All the weapons were put down. Because generosity melts hearts. And Paul says that when this service of generosity that you perform is released it will not only supply the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ, for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you. Paul knows that generosity will come from open hearts. And will melt hearts so that they praise God and pray for you. And what's wrong with that? So, friends... My sense is that many of us need to hear this message of generosity. A message that we have a choice in. A message that we get to decide something about. And we choose either to live this way or live another way. But if you choose to live this way, then Paul and the Holy Spirit say, God is able to do something that's very special and it'll change our life and the lives of others let's pray